You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Today's reading is from Isaiah, chapters 56 and 57. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow... Will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of sorceresses, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering, you have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For, deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, It is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dive into the text of Isaiah this morning, I want to talk vision with you for a few minutes. Uh, First of all, I want to give you a quick financial update from the month of October, so you'll see on the slide behind me, our giving was a little bit behind in October. We're still ahead for the year, but occasionally we have dips like this uh, in various months. And so I know there's probably a few guys that didn't tithe last month, and that's why we're down and stuff like that. So if you could just make up that 23 grand, that'd be great. Um, but no, seriously, uh, continue to practice good stewardship and honor the Lord in your giving. Um, if you want to know how you give here at Cormdale, because we don't take an offering, there's a giving box out in the hallways you leave, and you can also give online. And so, of course, that's for those of you who this is your church, and you're a worshiper of Jesus, and this is how you're trying to honor him uh, financially. So that update is done. Uh, one of our convictions here at Quorum Deo is that God actually is active in the world. So we live in a cynical age, in a skeptical age, in a day when people are like, eh, I'm not even sure there is a God. Our conviction is, no, there is a God. And not only is there a God, but God is active in the world. God is moving in the world. God's up to stuff in the world. And if you study the history of the United States of America, you'll notice there's a first great awakening and there's a second great awakening. And those are periods in our national history when God poured out his spirit in dramatic ways that brought about renewal and revival and literally changed the culture and climate of our nation. That happened in 1740 and again about 1800. And so because we long to see that kind of a movement of God again, because we want to see him do those kinds of things in our day, there's a couple ways that we particularly, as a church, are giving ourselves to that kind of movement and seeking to help be a part of that in whatever ways God would allow us to be. The first is through being part of the Acts 29 network, which is a network of churches that plant other churches. So it's like-minded churches coming together to launch out, start, fund, equip new church planters to start new churches. And so last week, some of our staff were in Dallas for the Acts 29 North America Conference. This is a conference we do once a year just to equip and train and cast vision and send new churches and church planters. And so I had the privilege of teaching there, and we were a part of networking, encouraging church planters, getting into conversations with people who are thinking about and beginning to pray through the idea of church planting. And so uh, that's one way that we're seeking to be about movement. The second way that we're giving ourselves to movement is by training leaders, specifically through theological education. And so a few years ago, we began Porterbrook Omaha, which is a church-based theological training program. And that's been a great success. Many of you have been a part of that or are currently a part of that. Um, What's happened in the past few years in light of the greater changes in higher education is that theological seminaries are beginning to see the need to train people in the context of the local church. And so they've been beginning to pursue these same kinds of models. And so this year, in partnership with Midwestern Seminary down in Kansas City and with Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa, Uh, We've been pioneering a new master's degree program in theology. And so myself and some of our uh, members returned just last night from a theology summit in Ames, Iowa, where I taught on the attributes of God, the nature and character of God. Um, I was the only speaker on the docket without a PhD behind my name, so it was a little intimidating. Uh, Some of the men that I was sharing the stage with are guys who have PhDs in philosophical theology and who teach at major academic institutions. And so it was just a great chance to be together learning about the nature of God and equipping and educating on theology. And so I want you to know that these things are going on, and I want you to realize that as you're a part of Corndale, these are the kinds of things that you're a part of. These are the kinds of things that we as a church are giving ourselves to and what we're really longing for and hoping for and praying for and what I hope that you are joining us in prayer for is to see a third great awakening, 
to see God pour out His Spirit in ways that bring renewal and revival and literally change the climate and the culture of our nation and of our civilization. That's what we're hoping for and longing for. And if you're motivated by anything less than seeing a third great awakening, I hope to stir you up a little bit and inspire you to hope for that as we participate together in the Lord's work. Now, this year we've been making our way through the book of Isaiah, as you know. And this morning we turn the corner into the final section of that book, chapters 56 through 66. And so you notice the graphic has changed. It now says the final conqueror instead of the suffering servant because we're turning the corner into this last subsection of the book of Isaiah. Every scholar of the book of Isaiah acknowledges that there's a break between chapters 39 and 40 and a break between chapters 55 and 56. That in the text and the way the literature itself is put together, there's sort of a new theme and a new style of literature. In fact, for liberal Bible scholars who do not buy into the idea that God could actually uh, oversee the writing of Scripture, uh, they conclude that there's actually three Isaiahs. There's first Isaiah, and then there's second Isaiah, and then there's third Isaiah, which to me is a little bit like saying that because Wes Anderson made Rushmore, he could not also have made Moonrise Kingdom, because after all, it's different. And yet, any of us who know art, writing, film, literature, understand that part of what an artist does is they tackle new genres and tell stories in new ways and adapt their forms to new contexts. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah is doing. It's not three different writers, but rather one writer who, because he's tackling different themes and a different setting and and, um, structure, he's using a different form and style of literature. And so there is a stylistic change here between chapter 55, which we concluded last week, and chapters 56 through 66, which we begin today. So, next week, my friend Pastor Ed Marcel will be with us as part of Porterbrook Omaha, and so we'll take a break from Isaiah next week, but we're going to finish this book out on the last Sunday of the year, December 28th, and so we're heading into the Advent season and into the final section of the book of Isaiah. That's kind of where we're going, just so you know and have an overview of where we're going to be in the next six weeks or so. How many of you guys went on car trips when you were a kid? This part of your life too? Um, I'm convinced that a car trip when you're a child is the epitome of living by faith. Because there's a promised destination, but it feels like you're never going to get there. And so you just live in this perpetual state of when is this actually going to come to fruition? Now, I don't know what your childhood was like. I'm 40 years old. Okay, so when I was a kid, going on car trips with my family, number one, We had a crummy old Ford four-door sedan that was like the weirdest color green you've ever seen, okay? They don't even make this color green anymore because it's that ugly. And secondly, there was no DVD player. There was no satellite radio. I don't even think we had an FM radio. It was like an AM radio kind of a car. It was back in the day is what I'm trying to tell you, right? We didn't even have a Sony Walkman back in my day. And so... In the back seat of the car, when we would go on family car trips, is just myself and my younger brother, who's two years younger than me, and we were sitting back there on the two sides of the Ford sedan with the sun beating through the back window, baking us, right? And we're like, Dad, can you turn up the air? Because it's really hot back here. And Mom's like, well, it's cold up here. So, you know, we didn't have, like, air vents in the back seat or rear air, any of that. That's all new. That's all new. So my brother and I, of course, would get to a point in the tr- I mean, we went to... Washington, D.C., California. We took a trip to Canada one year. I mean, we didn't go to, like, Kansas City. We took long car trips. So there would inevitably come a time in the trip where my brother and I would sort of draw a line and be like, hey, this is my side, and this is your side. So don't come over here, and I don't want your toys over here on my side because this is my side, right? And so with two boys, young and active in the car, there's going to come a time when all forms of entertainment have been exhausted, and the only entertainment left is to pick on one another, And so that time would inevitably come, and my brother and I would begin picking on each other, which would turn into sort of all-out brawling in the back seat. And then my dad in the front seat would be like, you kids, stop it back there! What do you want me to pull this car over? You know, and he he would be off on the median and steering back, right? Trying to discipline his kids and drive at the same time, threatening things like, you want me to pull this car over? Maybe you've been there. I might just be doing therapy right now in the pulpit. (laughs) But I'm realizing that as a dad now... I see things from the other side as well, and I'm like, it's as maddening for a parent going on a trip like this as for a kid. 
Here's my point, if there is one. Life as a Christian is sort of like a long car trip. We've left home, and we're on our way to a destination, but we're not there yet. And so theologians refer to this as the already and the not yet. This tension between where we have been and where we're going. We, we live in this in-between, between Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the work of Jesus on the cross completed, and Isaiah 66, the new heavens and the new earth. And Isaiah wants to help us understand how we live in this in-between time, how we live in this already, not yet reality. Because this tension creates in us an ongoing tension between what should be and what is. Right? So we have our Bibles and we have these promises of what should be and what will be. And even the song we sang this morning, Swallowed Up Death, is this great uh, proclamation of what will be when God swallows up death. Right? That's, a, that's a should be, will be, and yet we also know all of us are going to die. Right? So, so that swallowed up death is still future. And yes, we experience the beginnings of that now in Christ, but not the fullness of it. And so we live in this tension between what should be and what is. So some of you guys are married, and you own a Bible. And so you read in the Bible, for instance, about what a Christian husband should be. And then you have the husband that is. And none of you are laughing because you're like, ooh, that's, I don't know if I can laugh at that. I might get elbowed, right? So you're like, I, I, I signed up for this over here, and what I got is this over here. And they don't quite match up so good sometimes, and I don't know how I feel about that. Or maybe you experience that not in your marriage, but in the church at large, right? There's this sense of what the church should be, a people beautified by the Holy Spirit, full of virtue and life and joy. And then there's what the church is, which is us. <laughs> we don't look like that so much all the time. And so there's this tension between what should be and what is. And when we think about the church, what's even more interesting is that it's not just that people are messy, but that the church as it exists right now, and as it will exist until the new heavens and the new earth, is a mixed community. The church is Christians who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and also non-Christians. We're all mixed up together in this thing. Some of us, God is going to save and redeem, and that's why you're here this morning. But the church always is a mixed community. It is sheep and goats. It is wheat and tares. It is Peter and Judas. This is the nature of what we learn from the Bible. And so here's the reality for us. As we live in this in-between time, this already and not yet, it's important for us that we ask the question, what kinds of character and disposition and virtue mark the true people of God? What, what are some of the fruits of someone who's truly come to know God and been transformed? What kinds of things should we be longing for and looking for in ourselves and in the people around us? What kinds of things should we be praying for for our church and for your particular gospel community? What are the signs and markers and indicators of a life truly transformed by the grace of God? And as we turn the corner here in Isaiah 56, Isaiah is bringing us into this tension between the already and the not yet. And he's saying, as we live in this time, here's the things that mark the true people of God. Here's the things we should be relentless about, hoping for, praying for, looking for, longing for. And he's really going to give us two markers or two indicators that should mark our lives. The big idea of these two chapters is that those who belong to God are marked by holiness and humility. Holiness and humility. These are the two themes that Isaiah wants to sound in these chapters, and these are the two markers of true faith in God that he wants us to embrace and begin to pray toward and work toward in our lives. Those who belong to God are marked by holiness and humility. So the sermon this morning has two points, holiness and humility, right? First of all, holiness. Isaiah 56, verse 1. If you have a Bible, turn there, and let's just look at this together. Notice what God says. Remember, turning into a new section of Isaiah, you were here last week when Nick so wonderfully preached on this 
feast of God's goodness that's available to us where he invites us to come and eat. Now chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come, notice that, future tense, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. I want you to notice in those two verses all the emphasis on keeping and doing and action. The emphasis is on active obedience. Holiness is active. The problem for us is some of us have a good theology of holiness. We have great ideas about holiness. We're just not actually very holy. Isaiah wants to say what God's calling us to, what marks us, is not ideas about obedience or a philosophy of holiness, but rather keeping justice and doing righteousness and keeping our hands from doing evil. That's what ought to mark the people of God. True, active obedience. So verses 1 and 2 are the basic admonition, the basic thing Isaiah wants to set forth and say, keep justice, do righteousness, pursue holiness and obedience. In the rest of the chapter, he's going to tackle two primary obstacles to holiness. So as soon as you hear the idea of holiness or obedience to God, there are two kinds of obstacles that arise to that. The obstacles are insecurity and pride. And Isaiah wants to get underneath both of those obstacles. He wants to apply the truth of God to both of those obstacles to holiness. And so he begins by tackling the obstacle of insecurity, and he's going to do it by giving us two characters that sort of uh, portray our insecurities to us. Look at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So we see here two characters who say two things. They have two mental objections or concerns. And God's saying, let you not say this. So so notice these two characters, these two examples. First of all, the foreigner. The foreigner is the one who is an outsider. This is someone who didn't grow up as a Christian, didn't grow up as part of God's people, is brand new to God and His law and His rules and the Bible and Scripture. The fear that someone like that has is, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. Listen, if that's your story, if that's where you came from and how you came to Jesus... Isn't it true that there's something in you that sometimes thinks, yeah, I mean, I know, I know God loves me, but not in the same way that He loves people who have always grown up in Him. Isn't there something in you that that fears, man, I'm kind of a second-class Christian. I came to this thing late. I don't get it. I haven't read the whole Bible. I don't understand it like all these other people, and so I'm just kind of not quite in the way that they are in. That's one insecurity that Isaiah is going to answer in just a minute. But first, he introduces us to a second insecurity in the figure of the eunuch. A eunuch is a castrated man. And in Isaiah's culture, this was not accidental. Uh, The Babylonian goddess of sexuality and fertility was the goddess Ishtar. And castration was one of the ritual practices associated with the worship of Ishtar. So what would happen is that men would castrate themselves and then would serve as temple prostitutes within the pagan worship rituals of the goddess Ishtar because it was very sexualized. So these eunuchs that God is talking to are probably former pagan worshipers, idolaters, whose bodies bore the marks of their unholiness. And that's some of you here this morning, right? Some of you are here and your your bodies bear the scars of past 
unholiness. And, and notice the insecurity that arises in someone like that. Behold, I am a dry tree. I'm dried up and used up. I've got nothing to offer. I'm no good. In light of what I've done, if you've been where I've been, man, I've got, I've got nothing that God could find useful. I want you to see how, how deep Isaiah understands our insecurities when we begin thinking about holiness. He's getting right down to the core of what sometimes keep us from believing that we can pursue and become the kind of people that God wants us to become. And so now he's going to apply the truth of God to these two objections and to these two kinds of people. He begins speaking to the eunuch, verse 4. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is the promise God is making to those who have said, I'm a dry tree. To the eunuch who said, I don't have the capacity for reproduction and the reason I don't have it is because I was an idolater and a pagan worshiper and so I'm not as good, I'm not as useful to God. God says, no, 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 I'm going to give you a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will never be cut off. There's an inheritance waiting for you. There's something you can be caught up in and experience and enjoy that's better than you ever imagined. It's for you. Then he goes on in verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants. Notice the language of love here. This is not speaking of some outsider who just came to the intellectual conclusion that the Christian worldview is a pretty decent option and so they made some intellectual switch from being an atheist to being a theist. He says to, to those who love the name of the Lord, join themselves to the Lord. There's a, a devotion here and a desire to be among the people of God and to love God and to serve God. Verse 7, he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Listen to me. Your worship is not second class if you're a new Christian. If you came to God out of a life that didn't know Him at all, you're not some second-class worshiper. He's not waiting for you to get your act together and know more of the Bible before He welcomes you and accepts you and gives you joy in the worship of Him. He says, this is for you. My house of prayer is a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, do you notice what's used as the mark of holiness three times in this section? Keeping the Sabbath. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why, would, why of all the shorthand God could use to describe holiness, does he focus on keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath? Because keeping the Sabbath is a reorienting of your life around God. In the Old Testament, it was the Sabbath. In the New Testament, because of the resurrection of Christ, it becomes the Lord's Day, Sunday. But one thing that's always marked the people of God is setting aside a day of the week for rest, for worship, for fellowship, for coming and being with the people of God and enjoying His Word and His truth and singing and celebrating Him together. And see, what marks a life given to holiness is a willingness to reorient your life around the worship of God. In other words, it indicates that what you're not trying to do is take God and fit Him into your already existing life, but rather that you're reorienting your life around the worship of God. So so this is the nature of what it means to keep the Sabbath, right? For, For some of you right now, you're here worshiping God and you have your baby with you and it's actually their nap time. Right? But what you're doing is you're reorienting your life around the worship of God and saying, well, we're going to have to nap a little bit later today because we're here to worship God. This is what we do on Sundays. For some of you, you had to get up early this morning to shovel snow because it's November and it's snowing out there for some reason. I don't know why. And so you got up early and made your driveway clear so that you could get here. Why? Because you're reorienting your life around the worship of God. 
This is what it means to be serious about holiness and to love the name of the Lord is to say, I want to be about his things, and that means my life fits into his plan, not he fits into my life. So the first obstacle to holiness that Isaiah wants to tackle is the obstacle of insecurity. And so, Because some of you here, as you hear talk about holiness, your objection is, man, I, I just don't know if I can do that. I don't know if that's for me. I don't know if God welcomes me and accepts me. I don't know if I can become the kind of person God wants me to be. He says, yes, you can. You're in. You're invited. For all those who love me, who want to pursue me, who want to be my people, this is for you. There's a second obstacle to pride, and now Isaiah's language is going to shift to be a little harder because the second obstacle to holiness is pride. And so for insecure people, there needs to be gentleness, and Isaiah wants to overwhelm you with the gracious promises of God to defeat your insecurity. But for the proud, Isaiah wants to confront you with stark, harsh words because usually there's a hardness to your soul and to your character. And so the nature of the Bible is soft words for soft people and hard words for hard people. So here comes Isaiah turning the corner now and getting after pride and the way that pride is an obstacle to holiness. Look at verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Notice who Isaiah is talking to and about. Shepherds. He's talking to the leaders of God's people. The shepherd is a metaphor throughout the Bible for pastors, elders, leaders in the church of God. He's saying, when we're going to talk about pride, let's first of all acknowledge how it affects leaders. And so if you're here this morning, you're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a gospel community leader, you're a church member, this is particularly for you. He says, (laughs) they've turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. They've become self-interested. Their leadership is not servant leadership, it's selfish leadership. And the metaphor he uses is they're like a bunch of dogs who can't even bark. They lie around all day, but they can eat. They get up to eat, and then they go back and lie in the sun and do nothing some more. They're not watchdogs, they're not working dogs, they don't guard and protect the people of God. They're in it for their own gain and for their own good. This is what pride looks like among spiritual leaders. So listen, if you're here and you're a leader, will you check your heart? Will you just ask, is there a sense in which you're doing this for yourself? Is there self-interest and self-love and self-protection and selfish motives? Or are you really here serving the people of God because you want to care for them, because you want to honor God and love His people? Listen, this is right. I'm on my knees as I'm preparing this week, applying this to myself, first of all, because I, I see this temptation. I know that there's a temptation for me to use all of you to advance me, or to use the platform and the opportunity that God's given me as a way to be about me and serving me instead of serving you. And so I'm on my knees saying, God, don't let this be me. And the elders, even this week, were together praying. God, let us serve humbly. Let us serve well. Keep us humble. Keep us focused on the flock. Keep us concerned about your glory. And so I'd encourage you to pray that for us and with us, for the pastors, for the deacons, for the leaders of this church. So the first expression and manifestation of pride is self-interest among leaders especially. Those who can use self-interest or or use ministry for selfish gain and and turn to their own way. But there's a second kind of pride. And so after he confronts the pride of particularly leaders and the ways that we can be self-interested, now he's going to confront pride when, when it looks just like brazen rebellion. So sometimes what keeps us from holiness is just a brazen indifference to God. A desire to be flagrantly anti-God in our lifestyle and our pursuits. 
Some of you here, this is, this is you. 57, chapter 57, verse 3. He's going he's to get even stronger now with his language. But you, you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, the prostitute. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? One of the ways pride manifests itself is in cynicism and skepticism and criticism, having a sharp tongue and a hard heart. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. I want to help you see what Isaiah is saying here because it's important. This is not just good poetry. This is not him reaching out for some images to help give his writing a flourish. This is exactly what their rebellion against God looked like in the day and age in which they lived. So let me help you understand what he just said. Among the pagan fertility cults in Babylon, the evergreen tree was the symbol of fertility. Why? Because it's always green. In the middle of wintertime, all the other trees in your yard have shed their leaves. Your evergreen trees are green. And so for those who worshipped the goddess of fertility, they would go to these evergreen groves, wherever there were evergreen trees, and they would have these pagan orgy worship rituals, and they would participate in all sorts of revelry and sexual immorality and idolatry to ask the gods of fertility to bless their crops and to bless their families and to grant increase. So when he says, you burn with lust under every green tree, he's not talking figuratively. He's saying, this is what your idolatry looks like. You run from me, and you're running to these pagan cults that worship under the trees. Gets even more graphic. Who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Again, not figurative. The god of the underworld in Babylon was the god Molech. He was the god who sort of had the keys to the underworld and to death. And the worshipers, or actually, it wasn't that they worshipped Molech, it was that they superstitiously tried to buy off Molech to lengthen their lives. And so if you want to live a long time, you needed to sacrifice to Molech, the god of the underworld, so that he wouldn't come for your soul. And so what they would do is they would get down in the lowest valleys, in the canyons, in the places that were the closest to the underworld, They had a bronze statue of Molech that they would put in a fire until it was glowing red hot. And then they would take one of their children and they would place that child on that statue's arms and watch it burn to death. And by sacrificing your own child, your offspring, that's how you bought off Molech to prolong your own life. Infants and children were disposable in this culture. My, how times have changed. So God says, let's talk about what rebellion and unholiness looks like. It looks like the pursuit of other gods that ends in decay and disillusionment and idolatry and rebellion. So he goes on, verse 6. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. To them you have poured out a drink offering. Verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved your bed. You have looked on nakedness. Strong words of adultery and fornication to describe their spiritual rebellion and adultery against God. God's saying for for some of you, your unholiness looks like a hardened, brazen rebellion against Him. And, And if that's what your rebellion looks like, He wants to grab you by the shirt and shake you up this morning. Say, do you see what you're living for? Do you see what this is accomplishing in your life? Do you see that this is adultery against the one true God? 
The good news is that to those who turn from these things, to all who turn from these things, God offers forgiveness and acceptance. But it requires, first of all, an acknowledgement and a turning. God is not okay with us claiming that we obey and follow him and still participating in things that are unholy and rebellious against him. It's just not, he's not okay with that. And so rather than making excuses for our unholiness, God wants to confront our unholiness and say, I want a holy people. I've called you to holiness, to obedience, to living differently. That's what you need to give yourselves to. This is what Jesus died for, is to make us a holy people. This is why God sends the Holy Spirit among us to change us into a holy people. This is possible for us if we will humble ourselves. And that gets us right into the second mark, the second indicator of God's people. And that is humility. So look at Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So think back to Isaiah 6. Think back to all the times in Isaiah that he's referred to God as the Holy One of Israel. Here's what God says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you want to know where God is? He's down there in the low place. He's down there with the humble, with the contrite. With those who are willing to be low and broken before Him. The word contrite is a word that literally means broken. Shattered. It's the idea of coming to the end of yourself. There's no more desire in you to hide, to fake, to pretend, to try to be something you're not. You've come to the end of yourself and you're willing to get humble and low before the God of the universe and the one to whom you'll give account. These are the ones, God says, who I revive, who I pour out my grace on, who I bring renewal to. This is where I am. If you want to know me, if you want to be in my presence, if you want to experience fellowship with me, it's in the low place. Among the contrite. So to make this a little bit practical, to give us some handles here of what this kind of disposition and spirit looks like, I want to borrow from the Bible teacher, Nancy Lee DeMoss, who's given a great contrast between what she calls proud and unbroken people and broken or humble or contrite people. So I just want to work some of these contrasts so you can use this as a diagnostic, so you can begin to see the difference. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. They recognize their need for others. Proud people claim their rights. They have a demanding spirit. Broken people yield their rights. They have a meek spirit. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled by how much they have to learn. Proud people are self-conscious. Broken people are not concerned with self at all. Proud people are concerned with being respectable. They work to protect their own image and reputation. Broken people are concerned with being real. They're willing to die to their own reputation. Proud people want to be sure that no one finds out when they have sinned. Their instinct is to cover up. Broken people don't care who knows. They're willing to be exposed because they have nothing to hide. Nothing to lose. Proud people are remorseful over their sin. They're sorry they got caught. Broken people are repentant over their sin. They forsake their sin and turn to God. Proud people compare themselves with others and feel worthy of honor. Broken people compare themselves to the holiness of God and feel a desperate need for His mercy. Proud people don't think they need revival. 
but they're pretty sure that everybody else does. Broken people continually sense their need for a fresh encounter with God and a fresh filling of His Holy Spirit. Are you broken? Oh, that God would make us, Quorumdale, a broken people, a humble people, a contrite people, a people marked by humility and repentance and lowliness before God. Did you notice? (laughs) That's where God is. That's where revival happens. If we want renewal, if you want a fresh experience of God's grace and God's goodness and the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit, where does it come? It comes to the contrite. It comes to the lowly. Holiness and humility. These are the marks of God's true people. These are the ways God wants us to live between the already and the not yet. This is what he wants his people to be marked by. And so my question this morning is merely, do you long for these things in yourself? Do you long for these things in our church? Do you long for these things among your gospel community? Is this the people we long to be and are seeking to be by the grace of God? So so let let me give you uh, three Categories. Number one, in what you think, in in what you know to be true, do you see holiness and humility as desirable qualities? Are you convinced, yes, these are things that are desirable that we want? Or is there intellectual objection still to whether these are even good? Secondly, look at your heart and your longings. Do you earnestly aspire to this kind of life? Is this what you long for? Whether or not you feel like you're there or even on the path to it, is this what you long for? You look at this and go, yeah, that's the kind of person I want to be. And finally, think about what you do. Are these things present in you? Are you actively keeping justice and doing righteousness and pursuing humility? Listen, I, I, know this is, I know this is heavy stuff, right? This isn't one of those sermons where you're like, oh, that was a good sermon, let's move on with the day, right? This is one of those that I hope what happens is that this stuff sort of sits on you a little bit. That you go from here, and this week, even in your gospel communities, this engenders some conversation and some reflection. These are the virtues and the dispositions that God wants us to cultivate. This is what He wants from His people, His holiness and humility. And it's my longing that we would more and more be a people marked by this. That this would be what marks our church and what marks each of us. The pursuit of holiness and humility. A longing for holiness and humility. An earnest prayerfulness toward the end of holiness and humility. And listen, here's the beautiful thing. The logic of this passage and the flow of this passage moves us toward the cross. Because what should happen, even as we're confronted with these things, is as we hear Isaiah in chapter 56, verse 1, say, keep justice and do righteousness, something in us should say, yep, I want to do that. And yet as you hear him talk about insecurity and pride, there's probably something in you that goes, yeah, but I see some of that in myself. And as you hear him talk about humility, there should be something in you that says, yeah, I want to be like that. And yet, I I know the ways that I'm not like that. Notice. How God ends this passage, verse 18. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and restore comfort to Him and His mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Did you hear that? God has seen our ways, and yet He says, He'll heal us. I know the truth about you, God says, and I'm willing to heal you. I'm willing to restore you. I'm willing to redeem you. I'm willing to forgive you. I know everything you know about you. That doesn't keep me from you. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. To those who mourn, to those who are honest about their sin, God says, I'll heal you. I'll create the fruit of their lips. I'll bring this fruitfulness in you. 
But notice how it ends, verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. For those who remain rebellious, hard-hearted, not willing to pursue holiness and humility, God says there's no peace for you. The peace I offer is to those who are willing to come in mourning, in humility, to get down low, to acknowledge their need for renewal and revival and grace and forgiveness and sanctification. To those, I will bring healing. But to those who are too hardened for that, who are too rebellious for that, who aren't willing to come to me, who want to persist in wickedness, there is no peace for you. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not everybody gets saved in the end. The good news of the gospel is there's no peace for the wicked. You don't want to be that person. There is healing and joy and satisfaction and redemption for those who come to the Lord in humility. You want to be that person. And so this morning, this this message, this door stands open to you. God says, come receive healing. Come acknowledge all the ways that you're unholy and all the ways that you lack humility. And let me fill in the gaps. Let me take you to the cross of my son. Let me show you the price that I paid to purchase you, to redeem you out of that sin and slavery, and to give you a whole new life and a whole new heart and a whole new disposition so that now you can look like this. Let me heal you. To those who are far and to those who are near. doesn't matter whether this is the first time you've heard this message or the thousandth time that you've heard this message. Whether you've been far from God your whole life, not knowing any of this, or near your whole life, hearing all this, he says, here's the offer, peace. So I, I want to ask that you join me in prayer, and let's just be honest with God. We should invite Him to do some work in us. And then we're going to Take communion and we're going to sing. And in our singing, we're going to celebrate. We're going to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the God who is and who invites us to know Him and be healed by Him. So let's pray and let's ask Him to do these things in us. Would you join me? God, thanks for the gracious, soft words of this passage to those of us who wrestle with insecurity. And thanks for the precious strength of these words to those of us who are prideful. Thanks that you speak in both ways, soft words to soft hearts, hard words to hard hearts. And God, we acknowledge before you that we need your grace. God, I acknowledge my own failures in holiness and humility. Acknowledge my need as a leader to come and receive your grace and be healed by you in the ways that I would seek to pursue self-interest. And so I stand here as one of many, God, and in this room this morning, we would just humble ourselves and come low before you and say, God, would you, would you help us? Would you heal us? Would you change us? Would you bring us low this morning before you? God, would you increasingly make us a people who long for holiness and humility? Help us be people who long for this and who desire this and who pursue this. God, not just for our own lives, but for the people we love, for our families, for our gospel communities, for our church, and for the churches we plant and partner with. God, would you cause us to be marked by holiness and humility? We come low before you this morning. We recognize that you are God and that we want to be contrite. And so, Father, for those of us who have not yet come to the end of ourselves, bring us there. Bring us there in a way that ushers us into the beauty and the grace and the goodness of your kingdom life. In and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.